each of us, between now and tomorrow, will use about 150 litres of water. That's 30 gallons. And the industry that supports us, electricity largely, uses the same again. So each of us is 300, 600, 900, 1200 litres a day. This demand on water is escalating. In California, until recently, they were up to about 400 litres a day per head, which is a lot of water, and they're running out. But it's one major area. It's an engineering area, it's a, a personal responsibility area. We use it as if it was an, an inexhaustible resource, and it isn't. As the president of the National Geographical Society said, planet Earth has a water crisis. So that's a, that's a major area, but is in one sense relatively straightforward. You've simply got to reorganise people ourselves and reorganise suppliers, easier said than done. The second area is much more a personal concern, because what comes out of the tap is the pollution. And I'd like to talk a bit about that, because there's a lot of concern, let's say, and uninformed concern about pollution levels. And it's a very big and complex subject. Now, when you tell on the tap what's in it, chlorine is one thing that's in our water, and the, the pollutants that go into water are legion. They run into something like, um, there are 100,000 synthetic substances that have been produced in the last 50 years that have gone into the environment. That's something that the, and many of those are some level water soluble. So many of these are in our water supply. We throw them away into tips and so on, and they're leaching into the water supply. And although you look at the spring, it's beautiful clear water. When we looked at, at Cerny Abbott, Cerny Abbott this afternoon, lovely spring there coming off the ground. But what's the water like? What's in it? There's iron in it, there's calcium in it for sure, there's magnesium in it for sure, a whole lot of things in it. And what can one take in as a human being? What can we drink that's safe and what isn't safe? And if you have your tap water analysed, um, which you have done at a cost, you will get a sheet back like that, covered in figures that's double Dutch, that are the standards that are set out for safe water. And these are the things you're allowed to have in it. So you're allowed to have so much calcium, so much iron, so much atrazine. Now atrazine is one of the many nasties. It's a, a herbicide used on golf courses and railway lines. And it's down in the aquifers. That's the water table. Uh, quite a lot of it. Relatively a lot. So you're, if it's more than uh, 0.1 parts, 0.1 milligrams per microliter, that's one part in 10 billion, if it's less than that, it's all right. So the EEC say, and if it's more than that, it may not be. So if you have, there are another sort of two dozen on the hit list you can have, if you have each of those at below their threshold, it's all right. So I said to an NRA um, pollution control officer, some three years ago, but what happens if I drink something with all of those in? They're all below their limit. What's what's called the synergistic effect? In other words, how do they act together on an organism? Because analytically, that's a bit of a nightmare. And he said, um, biosensors. And I said, biosensors, what are they? He said, shrimps, to start with. So, you take a shrimp and you put it in the water and you see what it does. If it goes like that, you think it's not very good. So biosensors are the way that we do it. Living organisms 
are the ultimate sensor of whether something's healthy or not. It sounds very elementary, one level, but analytically one can't deal with the complexity of all that's in there. It's, it's just it's an, a minefield for the analyst. He can say there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. What's the effect? Don't know. Yeah. So there's a lot of things in there at fairly low levels and only now as we begin to think that maybe there are problems. And how does one deal with that? That's one level of nasty, man-made nasties. There's another nasty which is natural ones like um, muck, which I'll show you in a minute, um, or pictures of it at least. That's the biological muck, there's a lot of that about. Um, and there are bacteria that get in it. They also can be very nasty, depending on what they are. Um, and there's radioactivity. Now these problems in this country have only begun to really surface quite recently. We have the oldest industrial culture in the world here. And the black country was black. As a child I remember, the Midlands, I don't come from there, I remember going to the Midlands, Leeds, Sheffield, and you didn't see the sun in the winter, and the buildings were black, and it was really the black country. And we discharged all of that stuff into the sea around us. Now, I am the trust is getting involved in what's going on in middle Europe because when we look at these pollutants that are can we can't quite see that can you see that Matt? No, it's just about sorry just a quickie to give you some so I'm doing an overview to start with but our country is small and the industrial heartland is even smaller it's sort of this bit and South Wales, and loads of stuff has gone out here, in assuming that the, uh, the sea is uh, a dustbin of infinite capacity. You can put as much as you like in the sea, and nothing doesn't matter. Um, the limits are being challenged or touched, met. What can we can do? But there's an awful lot of water around here, and it does get away. If you look at the Mediterranean, and more the Black Sea, and the Caspian Sea and the Aral. They're closed systems. They're holding it inside out, as it were, in the middle of Europe. Yeah? So, what's happening here with the opening up of um, the old barrier down here is that the situation here industrially is beginning to be put under not a microscope, you don't need a microscope, it's being looked at. And the situation is, compared to our situation, grim. And this sea, in the last two years, ecologically, is in a state of utter chaos. Chaos means that instead of catching a million tons of fish a year, two years ago with the catch, it's down to 10% of that. And the ships laid up because there are no fish. They're gone. And this is a catastrophe. And it's on a huge scale. And uh, what's to be done with it is a big question. How do you tell people about this problem? And how do you do something about it? It's an enormous problem. Um, Bucharest down here, we can say with Romania to start with, Bucharest has no sewage treatment system. It just goes down pipes and into the Danube. And uh, Chernobyl's up here, on the river Dnieper, and that comes down here. So all of these rivers, the five main rivers down here coming in, all of them are bringing down huge loads of rubbish. All sorts of junk. Yeah. I come to that river, uh, I come to the sea, and the sea is virtually closed, except for the Bosphorus down here, and it overflows into another virtually closed sea, which is also in crisis, particularly up here in the Adriatic. 
So the, the problem of using water as a liquid dustbin and the pollutants we put into it, organic, mineral, and in the case of Chernobyl, radioactive. And Chernobyl is by f no means over. Um, there's still serious worries there. Um, when you get a closed system like that, in something like 30 years, industrialization has taken place there. When it all comes together, whose responsibility is it? Everybody's looking at everybody else saying, what are we going to do? What are we, gonna, it's, we can't close our factory down, and who's going to pay us to, to bolt on a treatment system, and who's going to pay for the treatment of, in Bucharest? Uh, and so these are huge problems. So I'm just sort of sketching, if you like, the, um, the pollution problem is enormous, absolutely huge. So huge, you want to sort of go away and just dig your garden and forget about it. Now on the, this pollution side, one of the things that I have become involved with and looked at is, like a number of other people, is the ability of plants and their associated small ecosystems, that's particularly the root zone, to transform rubbish. That's both organic rubbish and man-made rubbish, such as plutonium. Now, plutonium is a man-made element that's highly radioactive, one of the biggest toxins we've made. And a plant has been found in America that doesn't transform it, but it does concentrate it. So a plant called the Jimson weed, if you plant the plant in low-level plutonium waste, the plants become radioactive, they pull it in, and you concentrate it into the plant. What that's doing for the plant is an ancient question. Uranium too can be gathered in, a concentrating process. These are extraordinary indicators of the capacity of plants to work in their environment and bring about a, a healing, a balancing. The plants tend to balance out the imbalances. You do this and the plant grows and pulls it back again. So the, the potential for plants and their microorganisms <coughs> around their, their roots is immense. The number of water plants that are available are huge. In this country it's fairly low. We go to the tropics. Enormous numbers. And so if we have to look at dealing vast quantities of water, treating them, and I was getting out fairly low levels of material, or transforming it, putting it back into the whole metabolic cycle of nature, that's what we're talking about, you know, rather than having something that's a toxin, how do you break it down and make it wholesome again? The plants, and particularly microorganisms, are extremely important for the future, there's no doubt about that. And we've looked at that a bit on um, treatment of mainly sewage, and looking at treatment of particularly um, uh, certain pollutants. We're trying to target particular plants, or particular systems of plants, in other words, groups, that would deal with particular toxins, like diesel oil, for example. Diesel oil you can break down with certain plants, and they go, yummy, you know. <laughs> cyanide, yeah, cyanide is very toxic. 100 milligrams a litre, quite toxic. There's a plant, common plant, you get around here, stacks around here, the bulrush, not the masonry, the bulrush, that will live on effectively distilled water and cyanide for years. It's been done for four years. 100 milligrams a litre, just breaks it down, cyanide, carbon and nitrogen, breaks it apart, that's basically what it needs. A few trace minerals as well, and it's away. Fantastic. Cyanide in, clean water out. Sounds marvellous. But the, the getting it to work safely with cyanide needs quite a lot of, sort of practical um, gardening. <laughs> so I'll just show you some uh, pictures of what we've done for transforming some muck. Make the lights again, please.
Now there's a typical, he's on a farm. If you go around a farm that's uh, a mile from my house at home, there's a, what's called a slurry pit. So the farmer gets run off and so on, and you see that's pretty yucky. A couple of tyres in there bobbing around having fun. And you see the foam around the tyres here, this stuff, it's bubbling away nicely and it's grossy. It's awful. And there's virtually no life in that. Oh, I did find what we think was either a ferret or a mink in that one. It stuck its head out of the water and looked at me, there's some worms in its mouth. Absolutely amazing. And I thought, how can you live in there? And it just dived down and said, you catch me if you can. So it was, um, it got away. But it was one of those two, maybe in a wild mink. So that's uh, a pretty grotty sort of, I've got another one, you see what this is like. This, this is real filth. What do you do with it? It's got indigestion. The water system's got indigestion. If we come a bit closer to home, that actually I should frame that one. I think it looks quite interesting. What you're looking at is the uh, the manhole to a a septic tank. So I'm afraid that's what went down the loo a few hours back, and that's what we flush and forget, together with all the potato peelings and the junk and the the uh, cleaners and the disinfectants and the detergents and everything goes into the pot and forget it. Now we can't forget it. It can go down to the treatment works and they do a good job but they get an awful lot of problems with huge amounts of stuff coming. We won't dwell on that for too long. It comes out of there, that's a temporary rig, we've got the water coming out of that, it's out of that little temporary spout there. It's just got the solids taken out and it's still absolutely filthy. Now what we did on this was to what you just looked at is behind you and down the field here at this point that's one structure it goes into another structure there it goes into another one there you can't see and down into a pond there we'll look at these in detail then it goes away over there oops away off the map down to the stream so if you just look at this we've got coming into this raw stuff straight out of the loo effectively and the first bed, this was when it was built, which was about this time last year. It doesn't look like this anymore. It's, it's grown enormously. This is the, uh, the junk coming in. And this is a, a very common plant around here. Stacks of it growing in the wetlands around here, which is Phragmites, the common reed. That's a monoculture, because that one will stand any amount of junk. It has a huge rhizome system. The roots, rhizomes of that are now probably 15 feet long and as thick as your thumb and full of oxygen. They're hollow, they're like straws. And they oxygenate the base, and so the muck goes into there, it's filtered downwards, and you've got a colossal micro-organic system there that's heavily oxygenated by the plant. It's fun what you do, and a filter. These are cycled, it goes into this, this one for three or four days, then into that one, and then down here, and it hops along. These plants are now about eight feet high, and the jungle. It runs out from there down to the next um, bed. It's also when it was planted up, which has got two species in it. Three species in it. It's got this one, which is the common iris, coming on with has a heavy rhizome system, thick as your wrist, or thicker. You see it round here. It's at the moment sort of two feet high. It'll grow four feet high in the, in the streams and marshes round here. In our sewage system now, this one, it's probably about five feet and it's still green after the winter and by the end of this season it'll be up about eight feet a giant there's a second one here which is I think sweet flag 
There's another one there which is the bulrush and there's some various margin plants that are some edges that aren't showing very much. So it, there's a second sort of flooding across this and then it goes from this one to, um, to another one and now we start to have fun with these little, little streams, your little stream of nutrient rich stuff so these plants for those that are interested in the bot botany uh, Mimulus there which is a lovely plant and more rushes and the uh, marsh marigold mint over there look at that four weeks later only that was a planting but in four weeks it looks like that um, there's the marsh marigold over there still quite small and modest but look at this Mimulus it just goes and the mint now mint root has a very strong disinfectant quality the coliforms you can knock a coliform count down to nearly zero from tens of thousands in an hour with the roots of this plant so this is a natural disinfectant you find it actually growing in the edges of streams together with the, um, um, the water forget-me-not which is another strong disinfectant and they're naturally disinfecting a stream as the stream runs along it's picking up a bit of the oils from this, this plant natural disinfection process so you intensify it here so we put a lot of that in and that disinfects so as it's come to this bed, the disinfection or the infection level the, the coliform or the bacterial count goes right down it carries on um, that bed we were looking at just then is up there it's running towards you, it comes to another bed here of um, typha which is now just showing again green with the spring coming up and we've got some more mimulus and mint and water plantain here so we've got a mixture of plants, you see, I'm making a stream down here. That one in about a month's time looks like that. Enormous rate of growth. And in about another three weeks after that, it looks like that. An explosive growth when you go into May, June, with the warmth and the high nutrient level. And this is what's known as nutrient stripping. You know, you're taking the nutrients out and turning it into biomass, which you can harvest, compost and use. So they're taking out a lot of the, the nitrogen, phosphorus, some calcium and then it runs from there, it goes onwards oh, that's a close-up of the, um, the mimulus interestingly enough, just getting very technical the, um, the mimulus here, this little chap not quite focused uh, that, that one, oops that one and that one look very similar at this stage of growth and they, they grow together extraordinarily well that's a mimulus and mint but they have a different, different rate of growth later and this one, the mint, overtakes that one later in the season and you get this very interesting learning to work together with the different plants and how they grow and then you get a system that works if you now look down towards the, the pond at the bottom there you get a, an open pond which uh, finishes up as a close-up of it so the water in that came from the tank which you look at at the beginning and the, the time through that system difficult to judge because it depends on the flow rate so is it evening or morning but it's an hour or two that's all we're talking about if you put a dye marker in the top it's going to start showing out at the bottom after a few hours and this has got goldfish in it and um, lots of species in it and the the technical count of the quality of the water in that pond is far below any required standard by the NRA the NRA don't believe the sort of levels these go to they say it doesn't work but it does and 
so one has going through here, this system will run you've just been looking at it, it's enough for 50 people it's not very big so it is possible, here's an example, only one, one system of using plants and turning what's fundamentally a problem into an asset, not only that, it's a very nice one, you have a picnic by the side of this, it's wonderful, it doesn't smell it's really nice and it's a habitat for all sorts of things, we've got dragonflies by the hundred and herons the day after we got the fish in, the heron turned out, you wouldn't believe it I don't know how they do it I was down by this with a, with a colleague looking at it, we were congratulating us yeah, we were down just checking, the fish are sort of canaries at this stage, you know, you put them in and see if they die, if, they, if they're alive, they're alright, so the, uh, the goldfish was swimming around saying, looks alright to me but along came this massive heron, you know, like this, dead set for the pond, and we stood still and watched, and he got within about 50 yards of us and went, <coughs> and turned off, and <laughs> said, I'll come back tomorrow. And, uh, <laughs> but he got it fixed, you know, within 24 hours, it's astonishing, and they're always looking around, they have a, uh, six fish in their heaven, yeah. Amazing, quite extraordinary. So it brings a lot of life. I'm saying you bring all the frogs and the toads and the newts, and you make an ecosystem. We're building eco this is pollution in reverse. When you pollute a stream, the ecosystem starts to fall apart. The species diversity goes. You lose the crayfish, you lose the shrimps, you finish up with um, mudworms or something if you go too far. You know? We're doing this. What you do is put the whole thing back together again. And it's a very interesting form of engineering. You constantly say consciously say, we know we want that, we want that, we want that, no not that one, that one, you try it out and you find that you build up the species again and you finish up with a wide variety of species and one of the, the, the easiest methods of testing the health of an ecosystem is simply to count the number of species that are there and particularly look at those with a very narrow niche in which they have to live like crayfish for example which are have gone from our area. You see a lot of crayfish in the streams around us and they're not there anymore. They've all disappeared. So that's just an example of the potential of plants and most important their associated microorganisms to make enormous transformations. Now, very fast. It's very efficient. Once you set it up, it just runs. You know, you just run it and there you are. Yeah. So this is part of the work we're doing, and certainly for situations like that, this sort of approach, give it some effort and some money and some years, could do a lot. Because you can take out very low levels of persistent pollutants with this. The third area, and if you like, the, for me, what's the most important? Supply is a problem, pollution is a problem, there are solutions to those, we've got to get at it. But there's a question. In that pond that you looked at, what is the quality of the water? It's been through a human being, it's been through factories, been through all sorts of things, through my digestive tract, out, down to that system, do an analysis of the water and it looks good. Detergent's gone, phosphate's gone, BOD down at four or five or something, and suspended solids down like they're all all the parameters are sort of pretty good. So you get a big tick from the NRI and say, good, we like that, you know, you can, you can discharge that water if you like, as long as you pay us, by the way, you have to pay to discharge water now. And the water we're discharging there is better than the quality of the stream we're putting it into. So improving the stream, you have to pay for that privilege, which is a bit of a cheat. So you have to pay for water in there, you have to pay for water out. And it costs more to treat water out now, on our bill at home, than it does water coming in, slightly. It's split into two. So disposal of water 
is more expensive than supply of water. But that's a, that's a juggling actually, by the authorities, by the water boards. But one, that's one quality test. So the, the, what it contains in substance can now be analysed with astonishing accuracy. You know, silver, for example, one of the things I looked at, but you have much silver pollution as your photographer, which is a problem. But many of these parameters can be detected down as low as one part in a million million. Now, one part in ten to the twelve, ten to the minus twelve, should say, one, one part in ten to the twelve. So that's a very low detection level. But is that the whole story? Because if you take water and you take distilled water, it's not much good to any organism. You say, well, all we've got to put in is the right nutrients into that and it'll be away. There's no problem. But this issue of water quality is not quite where I came in, but it's very close to where I came in. And one of the pollutants that seems to be ignored largely and is extremely important is this one. Now, I'm an electrical engineer by training, so I know that area well. And I've got a big question, and that is, what is the impact of electricity on the living organism? Now, you know if you get a shock, the impact is fairly direct. If you do what I did last year and go onto an electric fence, without my hat on, and I went down, I got the fence, my hand on the ground, touched my head on the fence, and it laid me up, and I had a headache for a day, it was real. So there's no, no doubt about the effect, but I recover. But, what about all the other things that are going on? As in this room now, there's an immense amount of electromagnetic activity that's man-made, colossal amount. There's all the TV programs, there's all the satellite transmission, there's the mains from all of this lot, there's the telephone calls that are going on a little bit coming in, not much from that. There's an immense amount. We could tune in with the radio here and the television, the right equipment, to hundreds, probably thousands of programs. And they're all going through the system. System, meaning us. What's the effect? Is there any? And this is one of the big questions. Now, on the way down here, I went to collect some branches. But before showing you those, I'll look at the next the last set of slides which are to do with trees now I was saying to um, Mrs. Corso earlier one of the issues I found teaching particularly is that um, people, young people, I've been teaching teenagers a lot and young adults, training, teacher training is that it's very difficult to notice incremental change when change happens slowly you don't notice it yeah. If, if the lights suddenly go off, you say, oh, I'll put the lights on. But if I dim them over ten minutes, you won't notice they're going down until somebody says, I, I, can't, I can't see something. It's, it's not noticed. And the changes in the environment have tended to be like that. And unless you're observant, you don't see that, you know, there aren't as many birds as there used to be. Oh, yeah, I remember that, you know. And all these stories. And you think, oh, it's just sort of, you know, amplification or an old man just sort of spinning yarns. And I remember when, you know, <laughs> like that. But in fact, the, the species count in many areas is, is dropping. One of the things that I have noticed going for years, and is now concerned enormously, are the trees. And the morphology of trees. Morphology is one of the things that we're really working on, I've worked on for years. The shape of things. It's a scientific enigma. 
what holds things together? Why is your nose, my nose, this shape? And why does it stay that shape, more or less? So, the effect of electromagnetism on this, does it have any? Now, the trees are in serious trouble around our way, and driving around here, it's also around here. Yeah? And if we just pop that light off again, and I show you to a few slides, that I've taken recently, these all in the last year, lovely landscape in Gloucestershire, the surface of those trees, the morphology, the outer form of those trees looks perfect at a distance. Yeah? So, no problem. If you start to look closer, however, at those trees, which are largely beech, oak and ash you're looking at, there, there is a, an oak tree, probably been around 50 years or so, I'd guess. Difficult to tell now, with the rates of growth. If you look at that, Probably, people would say it's a nice tree. That was taken last autumn, after you had the full growth of the summer on it. And if I look at that, I say, well, up there, there's a hole. You can see, I can see this branch. A really healthy oak with a very solid canopy of leaves like this, you can't see through it. Yeah? But up there it's thin, here it's thin, here it's a bit thin, and here. I would say that tree is showing the first signs of stress, an oak tree. If you look at it from the other side, looking backwards at it, same tree, th this is the same tree, here's the branch that's sticking out. With the sky behind, you can see this tree is getting a bit transparent. It shouldn't be as open as that. A really healthy tree, you shouldn't be able to see through an oak. This time it's solid. But if you look up here, one, two, three oak trees in the distance there. If you look at this one, you just about see it here from this distance, looking very thin. These have yellowed prematurely over this one. Well, that can be local water supply here. Well, these are actually on an old stream bed. Come a bit closer to this. Look at the oak in particular. That's actually not quite the same one. It's a very similar, it's a better specimen. If you look at that, that's typical of many thousands of trees I saw today driving down here. The, um, the outer canopy, this, has really almost gone and it's trying to start again in here. Yeah, it's only another go, as it were. And up here, this is terrible. And it's really bad. You say, well, pollution. So it is. Look at that a bit closer. The central trunk is a real mess, morphologically. I mean, it's real struggling. There's all sorts of creepers going up there. Closer again, in Germany, these are being called fear twigs interesting term, the, the growth is hugging the stem. This is not a typical oak at all. And the, the twiggy bits here, out here, are completely had it, are gone. Come closer again, you see that's three quarters gone. On the ground you will find twigs like this, under that tree. That's typical. If you look close at that twig, you find there are knuckles like this on it, and there, and these are extremely brittle. If you, on right, that specimen, I touched it, and it just fell apart, like that. And these are what, this is why I picked up those, um, I was able to pick up, what we got next, sorry, that's just another example of how bad it can get in a short time. That tree is probably what? 30, 40 years old outside of an oak. Yeah. And 
Yeah, let's keep going before I look at the twigs. Different specimen, a different uh, species, so it's a lion. If you look at this at the top here, it's really bad. It's very thin. And a great deal of mistletoe on it, down here, all over the place. Ash, also covered in ivy. Oops, sorry. There's one button. Covered in ivy, this one, right the way up, by the side of a road, looking very sad indeed. If you look out across the field here, you see that. We're so used to our technical society that we don't have a fresh eye. But if I were to not have seen that ever, or any, so anything like it, you'd stop in your tracks and say, what a funny tree, <laughs> what is it? That's a microwave relay station, I don't know what for, I think it's a military one. It might be um, telephones, I'm not sure. And just behind me is another one, that one. Now, I don't know how many people here know much about the electrical world, but if you look at these aerials, this one, this one, this one, this one, these receiving aerials, look at the length of these little bars. Yeah, now they're a few centimetres and this is for receiving radio waves of a few centimetres length they're probably sort of uh, they're quarter wavelength probably this is sort of half metre, quarter metre wavelength something that order these are much shorter wavelengths you know, these are down at microwave length and the question is can the, do these have any effect? it's a very serious question now this is in a woodland south of Cheltenham and if you look at this tree, sorry it's a bad photograph, it was a dull, it's not that dull though, it was very dull in the, in the wood um, this tree is a larch if you look at the top of it, it's going like that leaning right over to your right not a normal growth at all now this begins another chapter Part of the uh, reason for my being here, if you can just hold that last picture, that tree going like that for a minute, connect with that. Some, we have a, a threshold going over in science. And I, in my background, is saturated in a, in a conventional, if you like, scientific background. I was saying to some earlier, one of the premises, one of the fundamentals, of a scientific approach is that you're objective. I'm here, the instrumentation is there, I observe it and look at it, I get my data from it, I write it down, the system's working and I'm the observer. Which is true, up to a point. And a very necessary training in objectivity. And I've been through that for donkey's years. Really. And anybody from the scientific world knows what I'm talking about. You really separate yourself off and you just look at it. Scientists aren't supposed to get excited, they're not supposed to get emotional, they have no enthusiasms, they don't fall in love, you know, it's, it's just very like this. However, if we're to understand, I believe, the living world, we have to take a step. And that step is, first of all, to acknowledge that we're a part of nature. And secondly, I'm a part of the experiment. Yeah? That I'm a part of the system. That I am an instrument. Unless I consider myself an instrument, then I don't think we can really understand the living world at all. 
And this is a huge step, and it's a very difficult one. I've talked to lots of, lots of people about this. And I have worked on that particular angle for uh, many years. And the, the route that I took into that was a very controversial one, which is through dowsing. Now, we soon mentioned dowsing, people polarise. Some go down there, and some go down there and say, you know, great, tell us all about, about it. And the others say, you're off your rocker, you know, it's a load of rubbish. Well, I consider it a load of rubbish. But, I thought, if one treats it objectively, is it a load of rubbish? If I'm really scientific about it, because there's a lot of data there. A lot of data that is totally inexplainable. So here's a phenomenon that has no explanation. And I've found that I can do things that have no explanation. So one can increase on sensitivity enormously to all sorts of things. And you, you can develop a different sense. And if you develop a different sense, how can I talk to people about that if one has a different sense? Now, because of that, I was looking at certain um, aspects of, of the earth under our feet uh, 18 months ago and started to find some changes going on without going into details. And then through that, I got in touch through Ted Pavlov, some of you know, with a man in Austria called Gernot Grafer. And the upshot of that discussion was that we got him over here last autumn to tell us about what they were doing because he was also finding things out and it seemed very similar to what I was working on. I thought, that's very interesting, let's get him here, sort it out. That photograph you just saw, I was walking through that wood with this individual who's a wonderful man, very interesting. Now, as we walked past that tree, both of us went, oh, like that. It nearly knocked up to the ground and I, I got it here in the side. Why? Because up there, direct in line, was a big microwave transmitter with a narrow angle like that, going right through the wood. And through that wood where the trees were, that's one of the trees going away from the transmission. Now if you start to look around, particularly in our area with the Cheltenham and the GCHQ as it's called, there's a lot of stuff, there's satellite links and a lot of, it's one of the NATO communications centres and you're not supposed to know about it, it's nearly all underground literally, but stuff, the whole, the hills are full of little things I showed you. And if you look, you find that the, the trees, particularly in, in direct beam from some of these, you can see where they're affected. The trees are going on the sort of upwind side, as it were. And they're actually damaged. And this concern, has concerned for a while. And the work of this individual has been very much concerned with first of all diagnosing the effect of these radiations, I mean electromagnetic radiations, and that's everything, that's, that's gamma radiation from radioactive sources and from the cosmos, x-rays, ultraviolet, um, infrared, possibly, but certainly down into the radio spectrum, this whole spectrum. What's its effect? And if you look not very carefully now, you can see effects all over the place and you say, well, that tree is in the path of that transmitter and that tree is sick. That's a fact. Now, I went round just up the road here as I was coming, coming down this afternoon and in probably one minute under a tree, I thought, that tree is in trouble, I picked up that lot. Now that lot is the investment by that tree last late summer autumn in its growth for the coming year. So here we have 
buds without the buds the trees had it and these branch on the ground and next year's this year's spring growth is on the ground for that tree so it's, this one tree so it's lost um, a great deal in my hand there must be oh, there are several hundred um, leaf and probably fruit buds on there as well I would guess I haven't counted them but uh, we did this at Hawkwood in, uh, in the autumn of last year I had a group of about uh, what was it, 30 people or so and we reckon we picked up about 10,000 buds in five minutes under a tree from one tree so if it loses that much in one season this is why you see these trees <coughs> particularly the oak because the oak just in detail now the oak has an interesting mechanism to stress which I showed you on that slide and you can see on the end of this one I did that the year before let's uh, look at that one that wasn't this year let's find a, a good one I can show everybody here we are a good one last year's build up for next year the investment of the planter for next year down here you see at various points various nodal points here 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 there's a swelling now the, the oak tree has a natural response to stress it runs short of water really seriously big root system big canopy very dry summer it will actually shed twigs it'll build up this node and there's a release mechanism now this one will go okay, it's not, not ready yet it's gone now it is need to quite a bit but down here it's gone it becomes brittle at that point and the twigs come off so it actually drops twigs under extreme stress so it reduces the size of the tree so it can start again with a big root system and a smaller canopy and build up again exactly what you see going on on those, those slides but the process goes on it keeps on shedding twigs until you get a, just a ghost there so the, the tree has gone now this is a complex phenomenon but without any shadow of doubt one of the stressing factors is electromagnetic radiation and particularly the satellite communications which are in the range of for those that are into frequencies sort of mm, 2 to 18 gigahertz a gigahertz sounds very good it means it's a vibration and a gigahertz is 10,000 million vibrations a second anybody here the satellite dish? no? cool what an audience <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful yeah if you have a satellite dish this thing outside pointing at the sky it's pointing at a blob in the sky sort of half the size of this room or smaller which is beaming down all sorts of in my judgment junk if you look at it from a nature point of view we have a reflector that's what it is up in the sky it's sort of in a parking orbit 30,000 miles out and it's beamed up sorted out reflected down again and the footprint, as it's called, is the whole of Europe, or whole of northern Europe, on the big ones, yeah? Right over like that. And the frequency at which it comes down, all this stuff, the reality in terms of twigs, is 10,000 million vibrations a second, which means the wavelength is about that long, which is the order of length of a twig. So when I showed you those aerials, and said, look, those are like this, that's an aerial, twigs are aerials, because they're about that, that sort of wavelength. Yeah? So anything, the twiggy length, is a sort of aerial length and if you know anything about um, electricity without going into details you get what's called standing waves in, in, a, in an aerial it's an amplifier and so you get standing waves in twigs the fact and that then causes stress so this is a stress factor and these microwave things where the wavelength like this is a problem the medium wave band the wavelength a kilometre or more as you come down on the television they're sort of like this you know the television aerial is typically like that 
that sort of size, so maybe a quarter wave length, it's four times that, or half that, depending on the aerial. So, this is a new area of concern. New in the sense that, probably in the last, what, 15 years, people begin to wake up to the problems of electromagnetic stress. And as scientific, there's been quite a sort of ding-dong going on. Oh, doesn't have any effect on anything. But I know someone with glaucoma, who came from fish ponds down in, uh, not so far from here, where there was the first, first major row in this country about the effects of high voltage power lines. And they lived very close to this power line and had constant digestive trouble and um, now has glaucoma. And there's quite a lot of evidence of this. And some years ago there was a public inquiry at Gloucester because they wanted to put a 400,000 volt, that's the biggest voltage power cable down the east side of Gloucester and lost the application, the CGB lost it on health grounds. There was such a public outcry about this, they've actually stopped from doing it because they were a bit, bit dodgy. So there's a growing awareness. The problem is that with this constant deluge that we're in at the moment of all of this material going on, this electromagnetic um, element, um, how do we deal with it? How do we turn it off? You can turn off your radio set. Yeah, but that just turns off your receiver, it doesn't turn off the tree. What do we do? There are two options as far as I'm concerned. One is to stop it, which in short term is impractical, though I think it should be made as difficult as possible for it to happen, but the satellites are up there, the microwave links are there, and we depend upon them. That's the other thing, we're becoming dependent on it. That's one, one route, which seems to me not very um, practical. The second route is to say, how can you protect the environment against it. Now this individual, this is an area that we are actively working on and this individual we got into contact with in, in Austria is also working on that and has done some very remarkable things. And they came over here in uh, October to run a course on roughly what they were doing. But at the same time as running a course on it to actually do things, and the doing was actually far more important for them than the course, I may say, to the two people I know were there. And they have developed, or he has developed, a pair of them have developed, various treatments, one could say, for the environment that are totally novel, completely bizarre, and unless you take a lot of trouble to enter into where they are, you would say that's utter nonsense. But the fact is that they've treated areas of forest in Austria, for example, and cause river flows or spring flows to increase, cause germination rates of plants in the, in the floor of the forest to increase. There are actual practical results from what's been done. So it's very practical. And the thing that um, probably as I'm, probably I think one of my best scientific tools is the sceptic. I'm always ticking myself off again, too enthusiastic and saying, God, load of rubbish, you know. <laughs> so I, was working with this individual last October and the the two things, that three things impressed me about what he was doing number one was his dedication utterly selfless worker number two he was able to bring about meteorological changes of two sorts one is create a wind and the other is to change the cloud patterns anybody that can do that to order deserves serious attention, in my view. And I saw him do this on many occasions, so I think, right, 
something going on here and I want to understand it because it's where I'm at so just to describe, it's so dramatic when, you, when you're sitting here, it's also a bit flat, you know, but get, imagine get out there in the field. It's a lovely clear day, there's no wind at all, fairly clear sky, and he says, we're going to put some materials on the ground here, and here, and here. Select the points. And when we do that, there will be a vortical wind, downwards. So we do it, and the trees start to go, for 30 seconds and stop. And you think, I don't believe it. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> you do it again. I mean, not, not, it, more work somewhere else, but it's got the same effect. And when I was with him for a day outside Cheltenham, that photograph I showed him, we were doing that. An absolute minefield of wires there. I mean, cables and microwave stuff all over the place. Working there, he said, if, not if, because he doesn't say if, when this work is completed today, the skyscape will change like this. And he describes how it will change. It's a clear sky, it's a beautiful day, sun shining, do various things around the place, driving around, working like crazy, putting various substances around, um, being very conscious of what he's doing. And he says, now, yeah, it's beginning. And you start to see little puffs of cloud in patterns going in the sky. Like this. Horizon, horizon. It's very impressive. Yeah, so I, but also, at another level, that, that sort of, the, the, the cynic in me says, you better listen, <laughs> something going on. At another level, I'm quite certain what he's doing, no problem. So, um, I'm just saying those things because we here move, and I can say a great deal about this area, and perhaps we need questions shortly to see what to speak about. We move into a new area, because if you walk into the fields around here, you see the topology, the geography of the landscape, the surface. Now you see the, the land, you see the trees, you see the cows, you see buttercups, mushrooms, whatever you see. But there's a second geography that we're only very, very slightly aware of. And that geography is sort of interpenetrating the other one. And we don't normally have direct eyes for this, but anybody who's a good gardener, or a good farmer, or just feels nature, knows something about that. And they say, well, you know, plant it over there and it'll grow. So you take this new plant, you put it there, and up it comes. And you say, well, how can he do that and I don't? There's sort of intuitive feel for it. And there's a life geography, is the best term I can find. There's a topology, there's a life geography that interpenetrates the physical. And how do we develop senses for that? Now, it's extremely difficult, I want to say, to do that, I think. But the, the whole minefield of Dowsing, I say minefield because it, it's, it's full of problems, has a sort of rudimentary access into that realm. I say rudimentary, it's very simplistic. And it's full of possibilities of error. So therefore it's not credited as a scientific tool because I'm the instrument and I may or may not be objective about what I'm doing. It's extremely difficult. And so the results can be all over the place. And uh, I know from working with Germot Grafer, from my own work, that it is possible to be objective in that realm. And therefore to have a sense for this different geography. And if you see how these two go together, therefore you locate a point here that looks quite arbitrary in the middle of a field, 
but it's a sort of nodal point. Just like I say, physically, here we have what any biologist would call a node, yeah, here. It's, it's a point where there's something going on, yeah. Um, that's physical, I can see it. At the same time, in the life processes of this plant, whatever it is, there must be a sort of dynamic node here for this to happen. One, the, the, the two are here together. If you look at the whole landscape, look in a field, there are places that are special. And the, the, the history books are full of stories about this place that's black and you shouldn't go there. And this place that's wonderful, you know, so peaceful, this corner of the garden. I love sitting there, you know. Grandma always sat in that chair. She was always very happy there, you know, this sort of thing. So there is a, I say, geography is the only term I can use, that is difficult to access, but it becomes extremely important if we want to heal the environment. Because if you want to do something about strengthening that life process, one needs to be able to locate these special points. And this is what this individual we've been talking about does. And at those points, he does various preparations and so on, that brings about a change in the dynamic of the whole environment, not that place, the whole place. It's just like going to a key point in a spider's web and shaking it, the whole thing moves. So there's a healing can come about through treating just very particular nodal points if you can get it right. And that's very exciting because it means it's a very economical way of doing things. This is what this work that I'm engaged in is about, as well as the stick and bucket stuff of getting sewage sorted out. The two go together and we have to increase the quality of water. Yes. So, any questions? Or are you all sort of being just very patient and smiling nicely? Yeah. Rocks, humus, and humus preparations, and the last, most important, is specialised plant extracts. So, if you look at an environment and it's sick, mistletoe on the trees, round here, lots of it. Why? The trees are sick. That's why the mistletoe is there. The mistletoe comes to help the tree, not vice versa. So the mistletoe is on the tree as a stress indicator for us. You say, well, the tree's out of balance. Long way, as lions I showed you. So last time they're here, they said, could I make mistletoe preparation, mistletoe compost? I take large quantities of mistletoe and compost it, because there you have the essence of the mistletoe. And that you can then use as a, as a healing element. You can concentrate the process, if you like, by putting it into humus and put that there, and that will, if you like, be adequate or better than the plant growing on the tree. So there's those sort of four classes of things. You know?